I came from Macedonia. Greek is my first language. I speak English also, as you can tell. I appreciate my Italian friend here. My wife is Italian. When I met her in the Central Park Zoo, uh, outside the orangutan cage, uh, she told me, she's not here to defend herself, she told me that her name was Riccadella, Riccadella. And I thought I was marrying into a Linguini company or something. You know, and uh, I grew up in the streets of Manhattan. I came from Macedonia and Thessaloniki. You may have read the first and second book of Thessalonians. That's my hometown. That's where I was born. And uh, then I came here when I was about eight and grew up in the streets of Manhattan. Learned very quickly that uh, it's a very strange place, New York City. And someone came at me with a knife. Uh, I was about seven and a half, eight years old. And this guy must have been, he was huge. He must have been 11 or 12. And he was running after me. And he caught me and he stabbed me. And, uh, but it was one of those trick blades where it goes into the handle, you know. And he was standing there going, ha, 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 ha. I died right there on the spot. I mean, I was, my heart was beating fast. I was in a strange land. All of a sudden, I knew that I would, this was different and I would have to defend myself somehow. And uh, I learned how to break antennas off cars real quickly and, you know, fight and do different things like that. And I told you by the time I was 16, I was running around with a pistol. I went through different phases. And uh, we got the golden Greeks together, you know, all these gangs. And I, we were the golden Greeks. That was us. And because we got beat up all the time, so we got together to defend ourselves. And so uh, that was the way it was in Washington Heights, where presently today it's the crack capital of America. And that's where our church is located, in Washington Heights and Inwood area. And uh, so I grew up there. I, I, was, I was part of that 60 era, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That was the slogan back in those days. And you got high with a little help of your friends and all of that stuff. And so I grew up in that environment. I was the main contact for my high school drug friends. I made anywhere from 50 to $500 a day, depending on a good day. And I went to school not to study, but to make my contacts. And, uh, and when the prom, when I played for the prom in junior high school, I also played for the prom in high school. I had a band, and we were the rock band at George Washington High School. Now, George Washington High School was quite a bit bigger than this school. We had 5,500 students there. And when Martin Luther King was assassinated, I closed down the school. We just took off, and we went and had our peace demonstrations and, and you know, all kinds of stuff like that. And But God was watching this crazy Greek kid, confused and messed up. Back in those days, I had more hair, too. And uh, I had hair down the middle of my back. I was real cool. I went into class trying to seek for my identity every day, you know, that kind of stuff. My clothes were crazy. One day, I went to school in a sheet, one iridescent sheet, looking like a monk from the Himalaya Mountains. My teacher just kind of thought, what is this? And uh, that was, but that was me. I was, I was totally absurd. And I wanted to, you know, I was, I was that rock group personality. And so I thought that's, that's the way you got to be. If you, if I wasn't high, I wasn't happy. So for three, three years, every day in high school, I was on something. Marijuana, opium, hash, coke, LSD. It really didn't matter what it was. As long as uh, I was high, I was okay. And then in 1968, someone told me about Jesus Christ. Now, by this time, my philosophy evolved to the point where I thought I was a reincarnation of Christ. I had been doing a lot of LSD. I was hallucinating. And uh, 
you know, that's a pretty humble view of yourself. If you're going to be anybody, you might as well be Jesus, I thought. And uh, so I was walking around with a cross in one hand. I was reading The Last Temptation of Christ at the time by Kasanzakis. And uh, I was seeking to find out more about Jesus Christ. It wasn't the Christ of the Bible, though. And I went up to a place called uh, Lake George, because I used to hang uh, around up there with with uh, some at a camp. And I went there, I turned on all the kids to drugs, and I got kicked out of the camp. And, and then I, I found myself in Lake George, and, and uh, walking around the street, someone stopped me on the street and, and asked me, Do you, uh, could I talk to you about spiritual things? Just like that, you know? And I'll tell you what, I thought this guy was the devil, because, you know, I'm Jesus Christ, I've got the cross, and... And uh, so I said, are you the devil? He said, no, my name's Bruce. And so he began, he began to talk to me about the Bible. He took out a, he took out a little New Testament and began, proceeded to show me uh, for two hours what the Bible teaches about God loving us. And uh, I don't remember much, but I do remember that he said, God loved me. And I thought, wow, this must be the real Jesus. And he came down to set me straight. So he, I figured he was going to take me to paradise. And uh, now you have to understand, I've been high all this time. And so I'm, I'm hallucinating, I'm imagining all kinds of stuff. Uh, I, I skipped a lot of my story. I don't have time. Time is really moving fast here. And I went to a boat. I got in a boat. I thought this boat actually literally took off into the sky through some time zone or something and dimension. And I'm in Paris. I got to the other side and there was God waiting for me. This guy in a rocking chair with white hair came right at me. It was a place called Word of Life Island. It was a, you know, it was a camp. It was an old guy named Robbie Robertson, and he was a happy old man. He jumped up, he came right at me, he hugged me. Now, in New York City, you don't hug people, you know, that you don't know. You just don't do that. It's not cool. Don't do that when you go there. And uh, so this guy came at me, he hugged me, and I'm thinking, this guy knows me. Nobody hugs me unless they're my grandfather or my mother or somebody like that. And he said, he, he had this big Bible. It was one of those confraternity versions. It must have been, you know, the big ones in the... And he kept on saying, this is the word of God. This is what you need. I mean, this guy blew my mind. I was like, I'm walking away thinking, I just met God. I just met God. Jesus Christ just took me to this island. And, uh, you know, I'm looking for the apostles next. So I go to this cabin... I go to this cabin, there's 12 guys in this cabin. It was a college and career cabin. I mean, it was, that's what it was. And, the, the, and I'm serious. Matthew was there. Peter was there. John was there. And I'm going around. I went into the bathroom. I literally looked in the mirror just to make sure I was still there. And I said, this is not happening to me. Now, that night I was convinced that I was with the apostles because they began to pray. With no lights around, you know, they turned the lights off. They began to pray to Jesus like he was really there. Now, see, if you grow up in a Christian home, that's one thing. But you come from a Greek Orthodox home, you don't do those things. The prayers in the Greek Orthodox church, they, they're very Gregorian, you know, chants and... I mean, they're very lofty stuff, you know, good stuff. But you never understand anything. Amen. I mean, you know, it goes on and on. I was an altar boy, did the incense stuff and all, and stole the bread, you know, and the money. And I was, I was doing my thing while the priest was doing his. All the wine was gone. Yeah. But that night, I realized, I realized something was up. These guys were real. 
The next, I was petrified. One guy, see, I didn't know what to say, so I said, good night, fellas, I'll see you in the morning. I was, I didn't know what was going on. The next morning, I knew Jesus was around somewhere. I wanted to find the guy that brought me there. But I, I didn't know, maybe he wasn't Jesus. So I was looking around and I, and I would see, you know, different people. And I, and I said, maybe that's Jesus. And I went up to this one guy that looked like Jesus more than the rest of them. And I said, you know, I was looking for Jesus. I'm, I'm serious. I am absolutely serious. And the guy said to me, well, I was talking to him down by the lake. You want to go down there? I mean, he figured out this guy is out of it. So he took me down there, opened up the Bible to John 3.16, and proceeded to show me how God loves me, and Jesus died for me, and he shed his blood and arose again physically from the dead, and that if I would repent and accept him as my Savior, that he would save me and give me a new life. And I want to tell you, my whole life flashed before me. I realized the commitment I had to make, that I must repent. The drugs got to go, my girlfriend's got to go, my music's got to go, the whole, my, my lifestyle. And I was playing in nightclubs and discos. I was living down in Greenwich Village with my girlfriend Vicky by this time. And I mean, it was a, you know, we were, we were 18 and doing, we had the world by the tail, we thought. God convicted me and brought me to a place of repentance. And I got saved that day. I told God, I said, God, here, whatever you want from now on, I want, a, I want Jesus to be my Savior. You know, I got saved, saved. I don't know, there's a controversy about how you're supposed to be saved. I got saved, saved, saved. You know, whatever that means, I got the whole dose of it. You know, because when I got saved, it was over, that was it. I called my girlfriend, Vicky. I said, hey, I met Jesus. She said, who? And she came up there. I took her to the same rock, the same verse of scripture. I didn't know any better. So I just showed her everything the guy showed me. And she started crying because we'd been living together. And I, she knew this was different. Now this Tom is talking about God. And you know, I told her, hey, I decided we, we can't live like this anymore. And I got saved and took her back to her mother's house. I went back to my mother's house. And then we went to a place called Bob Jones University. Oh, yeah. Hey, calm down, calm down. Calm down. I went to a real liberal place, you know. I, she went to one side of the campus. I went to the other side. I didn't see her for four years. I, I, think, I think that was the only way God could keep us away from one another. <laughs> but we graduated. We went to New York City. We went to New York City. And, and by the way, I, I'm, I'm not on very good terms with them for some reason. I don't know why. But anyway... Um, I went to New York City, and I went back to the turf where I grew up. And we began a little Bible study. We got married. We have five children, four girls and a boy, and two of them are here. And, uh, and uh, let me tell you something. This gospel can't be kept to yourself. And I was thinking of my brother, my family, her family, people in the streets. There are 18 and a half million people in New York City this World's second largest city right now. It's going to be surpassed by Mexico City and a few others. But right now, there are 18 and a half million people in New York City. There are 180 people groups there from all over the world. And God sent me there because the world is right at my doorstep. I want to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ came today, he would go into the cities to evangelize the cities with the gospel. Where would he go if he came today? He would go to the masses of people as he did in the first, when, when he came the first time. 
He'd go over and weep over Jerusalem and Chicago and Los Angeles and New York and Tokyo and the major cities of the world. He would move into the ghetto, not move away from the multitudes. We are, we are living a comfortable Christianity. I left all of that Christianity that was a hothouse, green plant environment. I went from Word of Life, which was gorgeous, to Bob Jones where, you know, they literally have a fence around the place. Okay? And I went into a place where I said, if it doesn't work on the streets in New York, this, this thing isn't real. If Jesus Christ can't be powerful enough to change the addict and the prostitute and the little boy and girl in the ghetto, it isn't real. So I went into the streets of Manhattan, 193rd Street. We moved in on fifth floor apartment and we began to have Bible study with people we met. And today, there are dozens of churches that we have indirectly started, and, and probably a dozen that we've started, right there in the city. Two weeks ago, two weeks ago, we dedicated a building in uh, Park Chester, in uh, the uh, east side of the Bronx. They just bought a $750,000 building, one of, an old carpet company, and there's about 100 people meeting there, one of the guys that we discipled and his wife. It's just phenomenal to see what God is doing. We went from that apartment to a basement. From that basement, we bought several buildings where Russ and a bunch of people from the Masters came. And we're, we're just thrilled to be able to be right there. And then the church began to meet the needs of the people, a Christian day school. Right now, presently, we're feeding about 250 homeless people every night, men, women, and children, every night. It's a massive undertaking. Because you just can't feed them. You counsel them, you pray with them, you help them, you disciple them. It's a whole big job. We've got a drug rehab upstate New York where we're ministering to addicts that have come out of drugs that want to change their lives. We're involved in a youth program on Friday nights. Now there's 500 kids that are in this club. They get a little card and, and, it, and it identifies them because they used to be getting into fights, you know, gang wars and stuff. So we had to find out what their names were. And we had, we had these little cards and they pay seven bucks to join the Bible club now. Isn't that great? And they're all coming. They want to join for some reason. Kids, if you let them join, they'll join. And it's exciting not only to minister to them, but also every summer now, you guys came, Mike and, and Kelly and, and Russ and all the people from the Masters came in 86. This year will be our fifth year, and we've got close to a thousand people coming now this year to be trained in evangelism and, and, and in the streets of New York City and world evangelization, but mostly in leadership training. We're seeking to really get people that are excited about the things of God. Now listen, uh, I wish I could just pour out my heart from the Word of God. Time does not permit. It's already, uh, I've only got about five or six minutes left. I want you to see a passage of Scripture as we close about that harvest. The passage I want to leave with you is in Matthew chapter 9. And you see in Matthew chapter 9, the story of Jesus Christ. In, in, the, in that ninth chapter, he is dealing with all kinds of hurting people. If you could entitle this message, you would say, Motivation to World Evangelization. Why should we evangelize the world? And I would ask you another question. What are you here for? Are you here to be educated? Are you here to, be, to find a wife, hopefully at the Masters, are you, or a husband? Are you here to have a family, to have children? To have some position. Is that why we're here? You know, you really have to understand what your focus and your purpose in your life is. 
Because if you don't have a purpose, you're going to spin your wheels, you're going to get off track, you're going to get messed up. I knew when I accepted Jesus Christ, my goal was going to be to evangelize this world. I knew it. I knew that I had to go back to New York City and tell them what great things God had done for me. As the demoniac was told to go back and tell them what great things God had done for him. And I believe every one of you that are seed carriers of the gospel have to go out and be planted somewhere so that you might produce. The dispersion, the ospora, was when they were... God looks at you and I as a seed. Because we have the gospel, we have his spirit, we have his power in us. He wants to plant us somewhere in the world where that gospel can come out of. And that's what it says here. In Matthew chapter 9, the Lord Jesus Christ came and he preached to the people that were hurting. In, in verse 2, he talked about, he went to a paralytic. In verse 10, he sat down with a bunch of tax gatherers and sinners in Matthew chapter 9. In verse 18, a synagogue official's uh, daughter had died. And this man was wrecked. He was broken up. The Lord Jesus Christ dealt with his needs. Down in verse 20, a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched his, the fringe of his cloak. He met her need. Later on in verse 27, two blind men crying out. Later on, down a little further in verse 32, a dumb man, demon-possessed. The Lord Jesus Christ was touching people all day long. Are you doing that? Are you going out? talking to people that are hurting, that are needy. Right here at the Master's College, there are students that you could befriend, that you could meet their needs. They might not be as, as uh, great or graphic as this, but they might, they might need somebody to help them with math. They might need somebody to just encourage them along the way, right here at this point in their life. Or maybe someone to lead someone to Christ. There might be a student that's not a believer. I led dozens of Christian, uh, uh, kids that were Christians, so-called, to Christ at Bob Jones University. One of the guys that was a chaplain of 200 students, I knew the guy wasn't real. I just knew it. So I talked to him. Led him to Christ. His name is Dave Barber. He's an evangelist today. He got up in front of his society and gave his testimony. He said, you know, I wasn't real. And about 20 others accepted Christ. So just because you're in a Christian school does not mean that everybody walking around is a believer. There are, there are needs in people's lives and we need to love people enough to be able to see through, to meet their need. Not to, not to you know, get a, some kind of point on our, on our gospel pistol that we're going around with. Just to love people. And the Lord Jesus Christ was a people person. There are several reasons why I believe we ought to be motivated to world evangelization. One, the character of Jesus. He was that way. He was out there reaching people. Amen? That was the character of Jesus. You see Him coming from heaven to this world to save people. That's what you see in Him. I think number two, the crisis all around us. Look at verse 35. Jesus was going about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness, and seeing the multitudes, He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. There's a crisis around us. Teenagers are committing suicide. A million teenage girls are, are going to get pregnant this year. In New York City alone, 37,000 of them got pregnant last year and 16,000 had abortions. These kids are going to be devastated the rest of their lives. There is a crisis out there. Little boys and girls are being born addicted to crack. There are whole wards as big as this where kids are crack addicts and there are not enough people to just pick them up and burp them and love them and hug them because their parents abandon them. 
This world is hurting, bleeding to death. One out of every four Americans is on some kind of drug right now. It's really desperate out there. In New York City alone, 79,000 homeless people. They say close to 3 million people nationwide. Now, that may not move some people, but you know what? When you see somebody and you crawl over somebody who's laying in the street and you say, well, he deserves it. There are a lot of people out there. If you sat down to talk to them and find out what they're really going through, you could be there. I talked to one guy in our kitchen. There's transvestites, there's lesbians, there's homosexuals, there's... There's some boys and girls that come in and moms and dads. And I talked to one guy who spoke seven languages, who was an interpreter in the United Nations, who got that way because his girlfriend broke up with him and he turned to the bottle. And now he's a homeless man just wasting his life away, defeated, thinking he has no purpose. There are people out there and there's a crisis. So first, the character of Jesus. Second, the crisis that's evident in the world. There are whole countries that have never heard the gospel. There are whole nations that are waiting for us to go and tell them that Jesus died for them, that He arose again from the dead. I mean, it's more exciting. Let me tell you, I love sports. I come in here, I came in here the last two nights and you guys are running around and making sweat. And it, I, you get into that thing. You, you get into that thing and you're excited. I want to see that kind of excitement in my life, in my church, in your life, in my children, over getting the gospel out to the world. As excited as a basketball game. Amen? A baseball game, a football game, and give it all your heart. Be totally committed to it. The crisis that's before us. And there's also, there's also a contrast. The harvest is plentiful. Hey, people are going to get saved. They're getting saved. They want to get saved. They're lonely. They're hurting. I wish I could tell you the stories. They're there. They're ready to call on the Lord. They want to get saved. All they need is somebody to come along and say, hey, let me show you where the water of life is. We're beggars who found the bread, telling other beggars where to find it. They're out there, they're hungry. And not only the contrast of the great harvest and the few laborers, but the calling of God. Let me tell you why we should be motivated. The calling of God. He says, pray the Lord of the harvest, that He would send forth laborers into His harvest. Prayer is the number one thing that causes evangelism to take off. And in my life, I remember just praying for hours in that little basement, five, six hours a day, just getting down on my knees, reading the Bible, praying and pleading for the city of New York. Uh, we haven't reached the whole city yet. We've still got a few people to go. But I've had a, a, a privilege of representing Jesus right there. We've had an article on the Daily News magazine, front cover, that reached five and a half million New Yorkers with the story of the gospel, and they paid for it. They paid for it, they read it with their bagels and their locks and they enjoyed it. And uh, there are other things that, are, that we're involved in that we're reaching them. I'm going to do my part. I'm going to be the seed in the place that God places me. Are you going to do your part where God places you, your brother and your sister, your father and your mother may not be believers? I wonder how many of you in here today have a brother or some relative that is not a believer. Let me see your hands. Look at all these Hands that go up. Some relative. Those are the people we ought to be weeping for and crying for because if Jesus comes today, it's all, it's all over for you telling them. It's, you can't do that anymore. And it's just so serious. And we need to be very, very serious about this matter of getting out the gospel. We can't hold on to it. 
We've got to go out with the gospel to the world that's sitting there waiting for it to, to receive it. Okay, so there it is. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers, if you pray, therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he would send forth the laborers. It is his harvest, not ours. He's more concerned about reaching this world than I am or you are. And we need to get in tune with what he wants us to do. So the Lord Jesus Christ went to people. He was personal with them. He had a passion. His heart broke inside. And if you do your Greek study, you'll find out that the words there in the Greek language literally mean they were strung out. People were strung out. And Jesus wept because he saw people strung out. And they were barren and lonely and empty. Not only that, but he was, not, not only was he passionate, he had, he had his priorities straight, he went to the cities, he talked about prayer, he knew what the most important things were. And then the final thing was he was positive. He looked at a harvest in the midst of all that garbage, and he said, the harvest is plentiful. And I'm positive as I look at New York, and you need to be positive as you look out at this world, even though it looks so bad in certain areas, you say, man, sin is taking over. You need to have a positive attitude. Maybe it's that friend or that relative that seems like they'll never come. Be positive. God sees a harvest. You may see somebody very difficult to reach. God sees a harvest. Pray for them. And continue to be a genuine believer in your own life. Let your life shine so that others might see Christ. I hope you take this and go with it. I once was a student like you sitting there listening to these messages. And I thought, is God ever going to do anything with my life? And I went back into New York and today I can tell you there are thousands of people whose lives have changed because I was willing to go back and be a seed where God told me to go. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel. As you're not ashamed of baseball or basketball or volleyball or any other sport that you act like a nut in, you shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. If you know Jesus, share Jesus with everybody you come in contact with. And if you're doing that, I encourage you to keep doing that. Keep doing that because that's why we're here. That's it. World evangelization. Be on fire for God. Be real and reach the world with the gospel. God bless you.